This is Car Expert. The idea of listening to 9,000 RPMs from a flat six is far more special than, <laughs> than a big wing driving at warp speed around a track. The concept drives like a Dodge, looks like a Dodge, and feels like a Dodge, but it's all electric. It's still not loud and over the top and kind of bombastic, but it does feel like Cooper's chased it. Something less out there, but slightly more sort of real enthusiast noise for it. G'day, Tony Crawford. G'day, Mandy. How are you? Great. I love your hair, Mandy, with these stripes and got some racing um, stripes. And I know you've been for a uh, well. Maybe I shouldn't say what I'm about to say, but um, you've been to a special event today that required such a (laughs) outrageous hairstyle. Mandy's competing in the 2022 barber competition in Melbourne. (laughs) Um, What a way to come into a podcast, Scott Colley. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Um, you know, but- my wife, when I met her, had shaved side and long red hair down one side. That's what attracted me. You know, there's, actually, there's the nothing wrong with those hairstyles. It. Yeah. It's pretty much what I've got now. It's an asymmetrical style with yeah. three stripes down, down I, the I side. Love the, I love it. There's yeah, something very – I know this is not meant to be a barber podcast, but here we are. This <laughs> might all get cut. Um but oh, what a there is something very liberating about shaving your head. I did it earlier this year and it was brilliant. I just you yeah. walk around and you don't have to think about what's going on up there. You get out of the shower, out of the ocean after a swim or a surf or whatever. And yep. it's it's really good. I would highly recommend to anyone. Except it's mm, cold cool. in winter, I've discovered. This is my Especially first winter summer, with right? half a shaved head. Yes. I uh, I suppose these hairstyles will come in handy when you when you're driving a convertible though, Scully, right? Yeah, exactly. There is, I mean, my head's already up in the jet stream. So uh, when you take the roof off, it definitely, it accelerates any messiness that might come from that. (laughs) So you saw a a rather nice looking convertible on the road recently you'd like to um, discuss. I did. I mean, this is a safe space for me because it is uh, a Porsche-friendly support group. Yes. And there's not many of you guys in the office. Even Albors, who loves his fast cars, isn't really a 911 guy, but I know you two are into them. So um, I've actually got two 911 questions for you. And the first is I I saw a a 911 Speedster, the last of the previous generation 911s. It's a manual but with the GT3 RS engine and the classic double bubble sort of engine cover and roof cover at the back. And it was just being driven on regular plates on the road. It was silver with the perfect spec. Um, you don't see many of them out there. They're worth seven hundred and fifty grand to a million dollars, something like that at least. So the fact this guy was commuting in it was pretty special. Croft, I know you've driven that car. So my first question was, was that your perfect 911? Yes. Yes, until the Ducktail um, Sport Classic, the new ones come along, mm. which has superseded my passion that car but again um the speedster has the advantage of being completely open and you hear and basically i drove it in sardinia where there was no traffic and i revved out to nine thousand rpm every gear and of course it's <laughs> manual um which makes it even better and um you know manual porsches uh any kind of manual porsches now are bringing probably 30, 40% more money than a, mm. than a PDK version, even though the PDK version is quicker. So uh, to back, back to what you said about speed, it's becoming so ridiculous now that you have super hatches beating supercars and it, the fun's gone. I mean, this is why I've just written an op-ed, by the way, on the i20N 
And I've said it's the best bang for buck performance car in Australia, bar none. And that car only does 0 to 106.2. And yet it's probably more fun than climbing in some of those super hatches that we've got from Mercedes and Audi. Um, Because you're actually driving the car and it's not doing it for you. And yeah. Back to Porsches, I can't afford one, so I'm a little less interested in the speedster oh, yeah, these days. I saw a speedster uh, last year at a Porsche event in Aubrey, and it was a red one with all the numbers on it. And oh. um, the guy was taking his son out th- for the weekend, and he he raced it around a track, wow. top off and everything. I, well, like, good on him. Good on you. Yeah, yeah. the same. But I, I saw yeah. my favourite modern 911 is the Targa. Yeah, it's I, a good-looking car, Mandy, but yeah. don't you rather the old 911 Targas that look no, even? No, I don't. Really? This is the thing. I never was a fan of the old Targas. Wow. Um, I, I just like the just the, the, the full coupe hardtop roof on them. Um, yeah. But the new Targas I think are, are way better looking. You know the issue with them mm. from a driver's perspective? They're sunburn. really heavy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the sunburn is a problem too, Mandy. Yeah, yeah true. Lots more glass, right? Yeah, yeah, but have they gone up? Are they that much? Are they nearly a million bucks now, those speedsters? The speedsters, a lot of people I think have been trying to cash in on the market. So I don't know whether they're worth that or not, but there have been cars listed for 750 grand or a million bucks, something like that. I Great. think they listed at 600 when they came out. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah. But it is a 991. It's. Quite quite a bit old now, but um, would you rather have that or a Sport Classic? Well, that was actually my next question. Would you have a Speedster or the new GT3 RS with its wild wing and DRS and all sorts of crazy stuff on it? No, I'd have a Speedster. Mm, I agree. Yeah. I, I think that yeah. the RS now is, I've seen it uh, as, as everyone has around the Nürburgring and it does not move. Looks like the guy's barely backing off and braking. So it's obviously incredibly capable, but for what purpose in a place like Australia? Mm. Like what are you going to do with it? Like I, I just think the idea of listening to 9,000 RPMs from a flat six is far more special than <laughs> than a big wing driving at warp speed around a track. What about you, know? you Scully? What would you prefer? Uh, I don't know. It's easy to say sitting here. I love the idea of the manual, but I'm actually really intrigued by the RS. It it seems like Porsche has gone to a place it's never gone before with a production road car. And some of the tech in there is lifted direct from a GT3R or even the the Le Mans 911 that they do for endurance racing. So RSR. As easy as the RSR, thanks, Croft. So as easy as it is to, to say, I'll just take the manual right now, I actually, I'm intrigued by the RS. I think it's a car you have when you've got other Porsches in the garage and that's your track <laughs> weapon. Um, if you only yep. had the money for one Porsche, I think you'd get far more use out of a Speedster, far more. I, yeah, I think you would too. Welcome yeah. to the Porsche podcast. That episode one. <laughs> I reckon you could easily do a weekly podcast just on Porsche. Yeah, I think you could too, just quietly. We'll talk about this week's car news with Jack Quick. Hello, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. The first story, is this true we soon could be getting affordable EVs in this country? 
Yeah, well, it seems to be the case. <laughs> so yeah. um, the, the federal government uh, wants us to have a greater choice of affordable EVs in the coming future. Uh, last week, it uh, held a summit in Canberra uh, where it got the ball rolling on its national electric vehicle strategy. And uh, many industry people have said this is uh, very long overdue uh, because one of the core policies that's gonna, going to be addressed by this strategy is the introduction of fuel efficiency standards and also the, um, the application of binding tailpipe CO2 reduction, uh, to a binding tailpipe CO2 reduction scheme. Um, one thing that I found super interesting is that uh, apart from Russia, Australia is the only OECD country, which stands for Organisation uh, for Economic Cooperation and Development, to not be in the process of developing fuel efficiency standards. So we're very behind in that aspect of of development. And um, the, this imminent paper that from the National Electric Vehicle Strategy um, says that we're significantly behind the pack. But um, in saying that, in regard to the story, there's more than uh, more than 50 EVs coming in the foreseeable future. So it looks bright on that half in particular. And um, the, the government also uh, previously introduced some legislation uh, going forward to introduce uh, the lower sulfur petrol from two, uh, 2027 to 2024. We talked about this a little bit last week or the week before where um, – I'm going to be getting better fuel, but it's going to be costing more. Um, but I want to know, Scott, do you think this is a bit too little too late? I don't think it's too little too late because to criticise the first real action our federal government's taken kind of feels like missing the point. Um, it's disappointing it's taken this long for the federal government to show some leadership. But ultimately, we're now at a point where maybe what they're trying to do still doesn't go quite as far or maybe it's not happening as quickly as we want but at least something is happening and it lays the framework for further action on that front. I think it's also worth mentioning that it's not just the federal government and it's not just at the National EV Summit these conversations are going on. This week we've seen banks announce they'll only give loans to electric vehicle buyers from 2025. We've seen finance companies launch incentives to make it cheaper to finance an electric vehicle. We've seen moves from a whole lot of different sectors that are adjacent to or loosely involved with electric vehicles, showing that they're very serious about the transition as well. And that's because the federal government is talking about it and all of a sudden there's a sign that the Australian government is going to set a direction. So it might not be enough, it might be too late, but at least there's something going on and the rest of the motoring industry and the industries that feed off it can sort of hop in the slipstream and, and make them work from there. Hmm. Well, sticking to some, some more things that are going to be changing, Queensland are going to be introducing new school zone and roadworks speed cameras. Oh, look, more money for the state. Yeah, yes, <laughs> exactly right, Mandy. So Queen, the Queensland State Government is uh, planning to roll out some new speed cameras designed specifically for school and roadworks zones. Uh, the cameras are going to go live in September and they're going to be running as part of a pilot program until April 2024. Um, so these cameras, they'll be rotated across prioritised, that's in quotes, <laughs> uh, school zones and roadwork sites. And um, in the school zones, they'll be attached to uh, flashing school zone signs um, that operate during uh, school zone times. I realise I'm saying school zone a lot, but that's <laughs> how I would describe it. Um, they're also operated by the, the people that help the kids cross the crossing. So that's how they're switched on and off. 
And I'm with the roadwork zones. Um, they're, amount, they're mounted to these specially designed smart track uh, a smart track platform, which kind of looks like an excavator, an excavator or um, Will, as who wrote this story, says it kind of looks like a refrigerator, which I agree wholeheartedly. It's just a big yellow box that kind of looks like something out of Black Mirror, kind of a bit scary, but um, does the job. It's a, it's a speed it looks camera. looks like someone can sit in there. Maybe open the door and. <laughs> I, I quite like the idea of roadworks workers, the tradies who are actually doing the roadwork on their break, just opening the fridge door and grabbing out a Coke or something from these speed cameras. I think that'd be quite funny. Um, it is interesting. We often criticise speed enforcement for being just in spots where they're hidden or in places where the government knows it's going to make money. I think if we are going to enforce speed limits anywhere, where kids are involved, for one, and there is no excuse not to do 40 through a school zone given it's a couple of hundred metres for three hours a day and the most vulnerable people around our roads who are the most likely to run out chasing a ball are, are there. The roadworks ones are quite interesting because we've got some commenters who've actually called out the fact that even when there are no road workers around, roadworks can still be dangerous. But it is interesting in that case that those cameras are going to run around the clock seven days a week. Uh, I'm going to be very curious to know, initially at least, how many people in Queensland get snapped at 10pm on a bit of road where there are no roadworks going on, no workers around, and, and very little sign that there's been any construction except for the, the different speed signs. So, I think that's going to be the test for them. I will just quickly mention as well, um, all the fines that are collected from these um, from this pilot program um, cameras are going to be reinvested into road safety. Haven't gone into that much depth about what that actually means, but that's what it's going towards. And I agree wholeheartedly about um, the the cameras most needed in school zones because in our office uh, in Docklands area there there's the school zone along the main road and nobody does 40 along there which is horrible mm. if you think about a kid running out exactly as you mentioned Scott right, getting a ball along the main road there it's just not fun and it's not good enough um I'd like to see in Victoria too I reckon it'd be very cool and very profitable I imagine as well Rather. You know, Jack quick calls Rather. for more speed cameras. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got some more government news. South Australia. Now, this is interesting. If you own a powerful car, uh, you might have to get a different licence, Jack. Yeah, good luck, Albors, is what I is what my first thought when I read this story. So um in South Australia, the South Australia's Premier has a pledge to reform road safety um so that high powered sports car drivers have to face stricter licensing licensing standards. What this means is um, they're proposing rules to say the drivers of high-powered sports cars will be be required to complete a specific training similar to like um, if you're wanting to get a license for, say, a motorbike or a truck, uh, which I have a truck license, and that was very strict in order to get that license. And um, uh, South Australia's Premier also wants to to ban disabling traction control in high-powered vehicles, which I think would almost be a given, like driving a crazy powerful car, you would only disable it virtually never is how I would think about that kind of aspect of driving that powerful car. and uh, South Australia also wants to strengthen the laws uh, surrounding banning drivers accused of killing a person um, from holding a licence until, until their case is resolved. 
And last of all, and I also want to reform the Criminal Law Consolidation Act related to a death occurring because of unacceptable driving behaviour. All of this came about uh, because it follows a girl getting hit by a Lamborghini Huracan in 2019 in South Australia. Um, The man was recently uh, acquitted of the charges relating to uh, causing death by dangerous driving, uh, but he's already pleaded guilty to um, driving without due care, which is a a lesser lesser crime. Um, He hasn't been... uh, sentenced to that crime yet but he has already pledged guilty but um means that he might won't be getting um as long as a jail sentence as he might be getting if he did get the um causing death by dangerous driving uh crime as well and um what do you guys what do you think scott is this a good idea is this too far i think this is really really lazy political point scoring um I understand that there are greater risks involved with driving really powerful cars and, you know, in Australia the opportunities to let them loose on the public road are are limited. But if the problem is poor driving skills or not being able to handle a situation where a car might be able to break traction or where a car might be able to go really quickly in a straight line, I mean, for one, you're going to have to train anyone who buys a Tesla Model 3 Performance. You're going to need to train anyone who's driving an old Commodore running on bald tyres. This is not a problem with the cars. It's a problem with the fact that Australians don't know how to drive because we're not taught how to drive properly. And that's not limited to the owners of high-end cars like this. They're more likely to go and do the driver training that often comes with these cars or to take a real interest in driving. So... I can understand how a Lamborghini Huracan and its driver, who I assume is wealthy and, you know, a very easy person to stick up on the wall and and take down as a politician, I can understand why that's an appealing target. But if the South Australian government was really serious about preventing road deaths, deaths caused by people driving supercars relative to deaths caused by drowsy or inattentive or poorly trained drivers absolutely pale into insignificance. So, mm. yeah, I, um, <laughs> I have some thoughts think, on this one. <laughs> I think they need to prioritise drivers who are towing, you know, boats and caravans before they even think about these sort of things because how many accidents do you see with those? So, mm. And, and that's it. I out. mean, obviously we're passionate about cars and we don't want to see people who do spend their money on the really, you know, special high-end cars that we love, not unfairly because obviously – People need to be correctly trained to do what they want to do, but see them targeted purely because they're an easy easy thing to take a swing at. If we're talking driver training, there are so many things that could be done, all the way from when people turn 16 and first get their learners through to when they want to tow, you're right, Mandy, when they want to drive a car longer than a certain length or heavier than a certain weight or, or whatever it is. So to arbitrarily pick powerful cars, uh, yeah, it's, it's cheap and lazy, I think. And boy, was everyone talking about this concept during the week. The Dodge Charger Daytona SRT concept has been revealed, Jack. Who wouldn't like this? Yeah, well, I freaking love it. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, previews the next generation muscle car from Dodge. And um, it, there's a quote that goes along with this. It uh, The car, the concept drives like a Dodge, looks like a Dodge, and feels like a Dodge, but it's all electric. So um, I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. And um, so a couple of things about this car is that it's all-wheel drive and it has an 800-volt electrical architecture. At this stage, uh, we have, there's no official word on outputs 
in regard to power talk, battery uh, specs and stuff like that. Um, but on the on the paper, in the pictures, if you haven't already seen it, it looks freaking awesome. And guess what? I haven't even got to the best part yet. It has a freaking exhaust for an electric <laughs> car. Oh, God. Yeah, so it has this um, exhaust that's capable of uh, producing sound up to 126 decibels, which is as loud as a Hellcat-powered Dodge. So very loud. <laughs> that could be good or bad. Um, yeah, I know. But um, yes, and it has fake been, noise, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a fake noise and a kind of sounds. If you haven't already heard it, like a strange stra- a spaceship kind of sound, and also oh. has an idle sound as well. Um, very otherworldly is how I'd, I would describe it. It's nothing. It's it's familiar, but weird. Uh, I can't think of any other way to describe it other than like it's just not quite right. And um, a couple of things about the the concept as well. It has like, a special front uh, spoiler. It has an, a multi-speed uh, transmission um, with artificial shift points, so kind of like a, a manual per se-ish. Um, I wrote a patent story a long time ago um, talking about having an EV with a, a manual transmission. So it's cool to kind of see this happen in a way that could actually eventually happen in a production car. And um, there's also a special button on the steering wheel it gives you a bit of extra power to pass someone. So a little bit of a, almost like NOS, but it's not. (laughs) This is going to go crazy. I mean, I've driven the Dodge Demon and it's the best car I've ever driven as far as muscle cars go. Um, But to have this in electric with a light signature this good in the interior, like this is going to go mental. I think the really cool thing about this is a lot of people are worried about the future of emotional cars when the world goes electric. And the the compensation for that or the response to that from a lot of people and a lot of car brands has been, well, we'll just make it fast. To be honest, I kind of couldn't care less how fast it goes because the Mustang GT, I'm sorry to say this, Croft, I know you own one. It's not that quick relative to a Tesla Model 3, but the appeal is in the fact that it looks like it does and it sounds like it does and... You know, people turn and stare and you can dip the clutch and rev the engine and look like an absolute tosser in traffic. Um, The idea of Dodge, I know that 660 kilowatts is nothing to be sneezed at. It'll be lightning quick, but it's put a focus on the emotional side of things and it's really applied the same sort of approach of let's make this interesting and and fun to the electric car as it has the rest of its range. Kind of opens the door for a whole new type of electric vehicle in the future. Yeah. Well, well said. But I, I do uh, take offence at the downgrade from bullet to GT. Um, how dare you um, put me down as such a common, a common variant, uh, Mr. Scully? It'll be interesting to see what the production car looks like because the concept looks almost production ready, doesn't it? That's what I reckon. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It definitely has that silhouette that's reminiscent of a current uh, Charger and. Um, It'd be really cool to see what features actually translate. I imagine, I imagine the exhaust could, because a lot of, as, as Scott said, people are really wanting an emotive electric vehicle that kind of says something and gives you a bit of feedback rather than just getting shoved back in the seat and going freaking a hundred k's an hour in two seconds. Um, But I. I'm really excited for this. I, I can't quite remember when its uh, production version is coming, um, but it's very exciting and I'm keen. 
Absolutely. Can I just say that this looks more like the original charger than the current charger? Agreed. Um, that, that's why I like it. Um, but, yeah, look, don't forget, BMW with their iX M60 having a unique noise as well um, mm. to the M uh, brand, particularly the M60. So that sounds fantastic when it's amped up. So I can only imagine that if these guys go crazy, as they always do at Dodge, this will sound even better and more in keeping with the car itself and what it's supposed to represent in the muscle car term. This is very exciting. Scully said it um, uh, more than uh, better than anyone. It, you know, they've tapped that emotional appeal and they, they will create something far more in demand than probably the petrol version has ever been. It, I mean, this is a really – you're right. This is so exciting and this will inspire other OEMs to – to do what they're doing and, um, you know, like you said, Dodge have always led the way with outrageous muscle cars, whether it's an SUV or, an, or a coupe or a four-door. Don't forget the Hellcat four-door was a fantastic car at 60 grand. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's freaking exciting. I want one now. Like, <laughs> let's hope they do right-hand drive, please. Oh, yeah, don't we all want one? All right, you can hit the news link at carexpert.com.au for more. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. We have been talking about this brand, for, I feel like, every single week on the Car Expert podcast, but now we've had someone who's driven three models of the Cupra brand. Scully, let's start with the Leon. What is the Leon? The Cupra, Mandy, I'm sorry, you're fired, Leon. Oh. Um, ooh, Why do they uh, spell it differently then? <laughs> <laughs> um, they're Spanish, Mandy. I don't, I don't know how they pronounce things. You've heard Rafael Nadal speak. Um, <laughs> it's essentially a hotted up version of the Seat Leon, which itself is a Spanish version of the Volkswagen Golf. So this is the – it's the entry point to the Cupra range at the moment. The base Leon V is going to be right down around $40,000. It looks fantastic actually in person, but I, I won't go too much into that. All the way up to the car we drove, which is the Leon VZX. And that's quite interesting because it's actually got a version of the 2-litre Volkswagen Group engine that is in essentially everything – that we haven't seen in Australia in this generation. It's got 221 kilowatts, so they're sort of Golf R numbers, but it's front-wheel drive instead of all-wheel drive. Um, it's a similar powertrain to the one offered in the Golf GTI Club Sport overseas that we also don't get here. So although there are some Volkswagen Group bits there, along with the styling and the interior bits and pieces that Cooper has used to set itself apart, it actually offers something a little bit different the lay-on to what you do get in a Golf or an Audi S3. And what are those differences? So the main one is the front-wheel drive. Um, mm. This powertrain in Australia, you can have a version of in the Audi S3 or there's a more powerful version again in the Formentor, the Ateca, um, and the Golf R. But getting it with front drive is unique in Australia. Uh, it's something that we've only previously seen on cars like the Volkswagen Golf GTI Club Sport Edition 35 or Edition 40. They did a couple of special editions there. Uh, to celebrate the GTI's anniversary since it was launched. The other real difference is in the way that the car looks and feels inside. So from the outside, it's got quite sharp lines. It looks like a shrunken version of the Formentor almost. There's some interesting angles and creases. I really love the way it looks in matte blue. Inside, it's got a whole lot of Volkswagen Group parts. So you're going to sit in it and go, I've seen these in the Golf before, and that means touch sliders and the little shaver sort of gear stick that we've criticized a little bit on the podcast before. But 
in the top spec car, the, the VZX that we drove, you get like buttons on the steering wheel for your start button and for your drive mode that sort of pop off the, the base of the, um, the, the hub of the wheel. It's almost like something you would find in an AMG or, or an Audi RS car or a BMW you know, M car. You get beautiful petrol blue leather trim, which looks fantastic. It's quite an interesting color and it contrasts really nicely with the bronze and copper highlights that are around the cabin. And you also get some unique graphics for the infotainment. So the digital cockpit, which is the screen in front of the driver, can be set up in a way that I actually like more than what I've seen on the latest gen Skoda and Volkswagen stuff. And I'm going to sound really nerdy here. I know you want to hear about how the car drives, but I also love that on the infotainment screen, you can set a widget up so you can control your in, uh, your air conditioning fan speed without going into a sub-menu. And that sounds like the nerdiest oh, thing in the world, but yes. one of the great frustrations I have with so many modern cars that use touch, in, uh, touch air conditioning controls is that I don't want auto climate control. I'm a control freak. I want to be able to fiddle with it constantly. <laughs> and you have to go into different modes and go through layers of menus. In the Cooper, you can set it up so it's on the home screen all the time. Awesome. Okay, so how does it drive? It drives exactly how you would expect. Uh, it's, <laughs> we only had quite a brief launch drive, probably spent about an hour behind the wheel. But what I learned from that is that for one, it's got all of the polish and the kind of control you would expect of a Volkswagen Group performance car. I know Croft has been on the podcast before. I've been on, James has been on, talking about how the Golf GTI, the Golf R, the Audi S3, they all have this incredible ability to be comfortable and quiet and refined on the daily drive, but also, you know, go really quickly and kind of set your, your pants on fire when you want to. The Cupra has that same thing. It's got adaptive dampers. The engine can be dialed back essentially so it's quiet and the, the DSG shifts up early. What it does have that some of the other Volkswagen Group performance hatches we've driven don't is that it feels like a bit of a mongrel when you put your foot down. Because it's got so much performance going to the front wheel, it's not all-wheel drive, you get a little bit of a tug in your hands from the steering wheel even on dry roads. And when you sort of back into a corner and then want to get the car to really hook up and pull out, it doesn't shove you in the back like a, a Golf R does. You can kind of feel the front diff dragging you out of corners like a proper old-school front-wheel drive hot hatch. Obviously, it's more polished and more refined than a, than a classic you know, Renault Sport Clio or something like that. But for as much criticism as front-wheel drive gets, really well-sorted front-wheel drive cars are really good fun because they have a distinctive character. And the Leon displays a bit more of that than we've seen from the Golf GTI and all-wheel drive cars like the Golf R. I'm going to be really curious to get it alongside the new Civic Type R and then maybe a Golf GTI as well. Yeah. I think that's a comparison. I'll, I'll put my hand up to right now, guys. Um, but just to see where it fits on that spectrum, because based on our first drive, it kind of feels like it slots halfway between something like a Golf GTI and then something a bit more serious like a Megane 275 Trophy or a Civic Type R. And I think that's quite a good place to be. It's still you know, suitable for bankers who want to drive it to work every day, but it also has a bit more edge to it for people who – are coming to the Cupra brand because it's meant to be a bit different and a bit more interesting than Volkswagen or Skoda. Hmm. Um, that engine note, does it sound like it's it's from the Volkswagen group or has it got a unique sound of its own? It's, yeah, I mean, it definitely has that same uh, that same sort of sound that we've got very used to. Yeah. This EA888 engine, it's called, is in absolutely everything. It's a fantastic engine. What Cooper has done um, is it feels like it's tuned it so you get a little bit more induction noise. So instead mm. of that sort of 
almost fake five-cylinder kind of sound you get through the speakers in some cars. You get, and I'm sure it's augmented in some way, but you get what feels like a more authentic kind of roar as you put your foot down and the air starts rushing into the engine. It's, um, it's almost a little bit more like a previous-gen Renault Megane RS, which had a really distinct induction noise. It's still not loud and over-the-top and kind of bombastic like a Hyundai i30N is, but it does feel like Cooper's chased a, a slightly more... Slightly less out there, but slightly more sort of real enthusiast noise for it. Those bronze uh, accented exhaust tips look amazing. And that paint job, I'm assuming it's proper matte paint, not a wrap style thing. Uh, yeah, so that matte finish is, is a Cupra flagship. Uh, it's their top of the range option. You pay a couple of grand for it. But yeah, it's not a wrap. It's, it's a proper finish. And I know a couple of people, my dad included actually, who have put down orders for Cupras. Uh, he didn't go for the matte paint. But I know a right. few people have because it looks so good. Yeah, mm. it looks fantastic. It almost looks more premium, to be honest, than just the black shiny finish on, on the one on our site. Um, so which one do you think would be the the most comfortable daily between that and the Golf R? What would you have? Look, I didn't drive the Leon for long enough to really give you a good answer. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I think that the both of them are quite similar. The Golf R is really, really controlled when you want it to be, but it's a small car on big wheels. The Leon's the same thing. So ultimately, I don't think there's too much difference in the ride comfort based on that first drive I had. Um a bit more time with the car in Melbourne, which we've got coming mm. up at some point soon, and we'll be able to give you a better answer. The it's quite a bit. Uh, I mean, it's the same price virtually, but ten bucks than a Golf GDI, right? The top spec, and then the it makes the the Hyundai i thirty N Premium DCT seem outrageously cheap at fifty eight five drive away. Yeah, that Hyundai price being drive away is definitely um, definitely very sharp. I think where the Cupra probably justifies a little bit its extra price is the extra performance it has. It's got more power. It's a little bit quicker than the Hyundai. Um, I think also side by side, the Hyundai is the more raw and kind of engaging car. It's got that incredible exhaust. It, mm. It's got a manual transmission option as well. I know the price you're quoting is for the DCT. The Cooper definitely does feel a little bit more premium and polished. Um, yeah. Is it seven grand better? I don't know based on that mm. first drive. And the Hyundai mm. i30N has always been really good value. Yeah. Uh, I do think alongside a Golf R, which is more expensive before you include on-road costs in that price, I think alongside a Renault Megane RS and I think alongside that GTI, which we've criticized for being too expensive, mm. I can see where the Leon fits. Yeah, it'll find a bunch of... Uh It'll find favour with a bunch of people. I mean, like you said, just to be different and not be, you know, a traditional Volkswagen badge product. True, true, Croft. Well, we're going to move on to the next Cupra model that you've reviewed, Scully, which is the, I hope I said this one right too, Ateca. Nailed it. Well done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what is the Ateca? So the Ateca is, I've described it as the least Cupra Cupra. Um, <laughs> the Cupra brand is quite young. It's only been spun off from Seat, which is Spanish Volkswagen, uh, in the last few years. And the Leon and the Ateca are based on existing Seat cars. The Ateca is the equivalent to the Skoda Karoq in the Seat range. In Australia, they're only offering it as the top of the range VZX. Um, so that's with a 221 kilowatt engine. You can get it with an Akropovich exhaust with Brembo brakes. 
but it still doesn't look as aggressive as the Four Mentor. It doesn't feel as special or as modern inside as either the Four Mentor or the Leon. What it does do is it offers heaps of headroom, a pretty big boot, and it also offers an alternative for people who might like the idea of the Cooper brand or want an alternative to the Volkswagen Tiguan R or T-Roc R or Audi SQ2, something like that, <laughs> but don't want it to be particularly outlandish or over the top. Uh, that's where this car slots in. And although it's the one of the three that I, I think least convinced me, I can definitely see the appeal if you are the sort of person who just wants to go fast and doesn't want to stand out as much. Okay. So what sort of money are we talking with these ones? So list price of the VZX is 65990 drive away. That's about a thousand bucks cheaper than the equivalent for Mentor, and it's also significantly cheaper than a Volkswagen Tiguan R, which is $68,990 before on-road costs. It's worth bearing in mind, though, a fully optioned Tekka includes $6,000 on top of that for an Akropovich exhaust, four grand for a Brembo brake package, and then another $1,800 for a sunroof. With all those boxes ticked, it's aligned with the Tiguan R rather than undercutting it. And I, I think the Volkswagen's probably a more modern and more appealing car. Mm. Um, at that 65,990 drive away price point, though, it's quite interesting. There's not many models that rival it directly. And the ones that do kind of come from within Volkswagen because the Kona N is not all wheel drive and it's a little bit smaller. Um, Audi doesn't really offer anything the same size, although it's got the SQ2. I can't think of anything else with similar performance at a similar price in a similar body style that doesn't come from within the Volkswagen world, not the T-Roc or the Tiguan. Interesting. Um, so what about yeah. the interior? Does it um, Is it along the lines of its other models? So this is a little bit older inside. Um, depending on how you look at it, that's a good or a bad thing. The positive is you get proper buttons and dials for everything. It's got dials for climate control. It's got an old-fashioned gear selector rather than a little switch. It feels quite conventional compared to the very high-tech Formentor and Leon with their screens and touch sliders and stuff. The other thing it does really well is the practicality side of things. It doesn't feel significantly bigger than a Formentor in the back seat, but it does have a really big back seat for its size. It's got a heap of tow room under the front seat. It's got quite a useful boot, and you could get me in the back seat wearing a top hat, and I don't think my head would be touching the roof. It's got a ton <laughs> of headroom as well. So... It's quite a practical option. The tech in it is very similar to everything else in the Cooper range, which means you get lots of colorful icons. It's all pretty snappy and you get CarPlay, Android Auto, Nav, all that sort of stuff. It feels the most conventional of any option though. Got a lot of bolster in those seats, Scully. They also look quite comfortable. The seats are fantastic and those sports seats or versions of them feature across the whole range. Even the base Leon gets um, seats with one-piece backrests on them with the headrest yeah. built in, uh, although they're trimmed in cloth rather than leather. Uh, Cooper's pitch in Australia and around the world is that it's a sportier, more interesting alternative to the mainstream and that's a part of it, having those seats across the range. Having spent a bit of seat time across the three different cars on the launch event, I can tell you, yeah, that they're really supportive and comfortable. I know also these cars are SUVs. They still need to be practical. They're not the sports seats that you struggle to get in and out of. You can still get into them quite easily, even if you're old and have bad knees. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who I watched get in to know that, but uh, I saw it happen. I can confirm it's true. <laughs> I've got to say those Akrapovich exhausts with the little holes drilled look fantastic. Yeah. But like all Volkswagen product of late, they've been criticised for their fair share of cheap plastics. How's this for the nasty pitted plastics? 
there's some hard plastics there and there's some stuff in there that I, I don't think feels worthy of a, a flagship car, which the attack is kind of meant to be. A lot of the shiny gray plastic on the dash and the trim and the transmission tunnel, for example, it's fine. It looks okay. It's not gloss black, which is points, obviously. Um, but it definitely feels a little cheaper than, you know, a cooler brushed aluminium finish or even a solid satin kind of plastic that you see in some other stuff. I think though, what you are paying for with this car is the seats and the petrol blue leather and the screens and that sort of thing. Ultimately, the performance it offers and the package elsewhere is enough to justify the fact that in some spots it feels a little bit cheap and even the cheap bits still feel solid. They just don't feel soft touch and special. Yeah. So what engine powers the Ateca? So would you believe, Mandy, it's a two-litre turbo four-cylinder. Um, ah. Yeah, new for Volkswagen. Um, it's the same <laughs> as the one in the Leon. It's all-wheel drive in the Ateca, though. Zero to 100 takes 4.9 seconds, and flat out you'll be going faster than you're able to go in Australia, so I'm not even going to bother trying to find that number. <laughs> um, I know it's not too bad, though. Yeah. It's, it's properly quick, and in the real world, it's got that lovely feeling where you can just lean on it a little bit, and it's got so much torque. It doesn't need to work too hard. You get a little squeeze in the back. You put your foot down hard and the DSG drops down a couple of gears really quickly and all of a sudden you're absolutely flying. It's a really well set up engine and I know I've said this a couple of times. It's in so much stuff now, of course, it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, The Akropovich exhaust is probably the interesting part of this car because you can't get it anywhere else on the Cooper range in Australia. It's an expensive option. It's It's a performance option. I don't know that it's a performance option I'd be bothering with though. Is it six grand? For six grand, I don't think it brought enough extra noise. And I also think on the Ateca, which is meant to be the most subtle sort of conventional of all the Cupra cars, Mm. it kind of doesn't match with the rest of the car to then spend six grand on a titanium exhaust. Mm. I I think just it doesn't add enough to the experience or or fit neatly enough with the car's pitch to to justify that price. Some some exhaust, Scully, add up to 10% more power. Does this add any more power at all? If there's any more power with the exhaust, Volkswagen doesn't quote it. Um, there may well be, but, yeah, there's no different outputs for the Akropovich exhaust or otherwise. Right. It's got a little bit more of a bark to it. It feels like a more real exhaust note than some of the piped-in stuff than in the cars without it. But ultimately, I don't think it, it's special enough to justify six grand. Did you happen to take it on some some twisties? Is it comfortable going into corners? We took it on some twisty roads and like the other Cupra stuff that we drove, it's got adaptive dampers. So it's really comfy in the city. It does a great job filtering out the outside world. And then when you do tip it into a corner, it still feels a little bit tall and skinny, but Mm. it also has very good body control. And because that all-wheel drive system is so grippy, you can just turn in and put your foot down and all of a sudden you're going much faster than you, you really should be. Um, it's very, very capable. And if you're the sort of person who wants to take the family to the snow but you know, also likes to get there in a hurry, it really fits that brief nicely. It covers the ground really quickly and it feels like it'll, it'll do it in pretty much any weather. Scully, are you going to tell us where the design, the logo, what it is and where did it come from? So the logo, it, it looks like something out of the Power Rangers and Cooper at its launch <laughs> events were giving out like carbon fiber looking the plastic but bracelets with the Cooper logo on them. It's definitely more fashion than car brand when you see it printed outside of the car. Um, I'm looking at the Cooper website now and when the brand was actually launched, they described what the logo means. 
Apparently, it balances different worlds and different elements, which I assume is why it's symmetrical on both sides. And it's meant to bring together passion, precision, style, and performance with determination and courage, all perfectly embodied in the new brand. Mm. Um, those two lines are doing a lot of work if they're doing all those things. <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, we're going to move on to the the third model that you reviewed, which is it also sounds like something out of Power Rangers, the Full Mentor. The Full Mentor, I think, is the most interesting of the three cars we drove, and it's the one that is attracting the most interest, according to Cupra. It's also the one that my dad has actually put a deposit down on. So um, if you're listening, Rob, I yeah, good job. I like it. <laughs> Why did um, you decide to um, get the Full Mentor? So I think part of the appeal of the Full Mentor is that for 65 or 66 grand drive away for the top spec VZX, you get a car that looks really, really good in person. Mm. Proportionally, it's quite similar to a Porsche Macan. It's a very similar size, but it's got quite an aggressive sort of angular design that I know, Croft, you wrote an op-ed about this. There's a bit of Lamborghini Urus about some of the, the, mm. the angles on it. Um, for him, I know just the fact that he's hopping out of something European and a little more expensive and it's getting very expensive to maintain. The idea of being able to sell his car and then use what his car was worth to buy a car yeah. for 66 drive away with three years of free servicing was a core part of the appeal. Makes sense. Golly, is he also a human skyscraper? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is six foot two, as is my mother, Croft. Oh. <laughs> so I'm gathering you could have fitted into the full mental rather easily then. I did, yeah. So yeah. I was really impressed with how it was packaged. Up front, there's nice. a ton of space. It's got a similar interior to the Leon with um, – with big screens, lots of touch sliders, that sort of thing. Hopefully he hasn't ordered white. No, he hasn't ordered white. He's just coming in um, metallic blue, not the matte one, the the um, the, yeah. the glossy one. Um, nice. And it's a VZX, so it's got the the wheels with the the big wheels with the copper highlights and that sort of thing on it. Can I ask why he didn't go for this lovely blue matte finish? Like, I think he was concerned about maintaining it. Uh, and I say mm. I think he was concerned about maintaining it. He asked if he should, and I said don't because I don't know how you'd maintain it. Um, <laughs> I know with previous frozen finishes like BMW and the early days of the Hyundai Veloster with that matte paint, mm. they were quite particular. If a bird pooped on the car, you had to get it off within a couple of hours or it would eat yeah. through the paint finish. Yeah. You had to wash it a certain way with certain chemicals. And just knowing uh, how life tends to work, there's not many people who are willing to actually committing to doing that properly. I know Cooper hasn't released special instructions with this paint, um, so it's mm. meant to hold up just as well as any other finish, and I have no doubt it'll hold up well. But I think in the case of, of him, I didn't want to recommend it and then find out six months later that because he hadn't cleaned it, he's got spots on it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, the, 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 I think the I've never been a matte finish person because I like my cars gleaming. But the BMW i4 and iX, um, i4 in that blue matte, that turned me – I'm now a huge fan of matte paint. The fact that you don't have to spend hours and weekends waxing, polishing <laughs> is a joy and something that looks so good on performance cars like this with a lot of angles um, I, I think is a big plus for these sort of cars. They give it an extra layer of prestige, which I don't think it would have with a standard two-pack finish, you know. There's That's definitely um, there's something to be said as well for the fact that on a car like this Formentor and, and the i4 as well, which have really strong lines, the fact that the light doesn't reflect off them and distract and sort of like you, you can lose parts of the cars in reflections, 
the fact that mm. it sort of sucks the light in and really highlights those creases rather than, you know, reflecting or deflecting, I think is a real highlight. Yeah. The front and the back looked terrific on this car, by the way. Like it's, you're right, it's really got good proportions. And what do you, what do you think about the bronze accents on the wheels? I'm, I'm kind of for them. I think they keep really nicely with what the rest of the car is is going for. Um, Cupra has used those bronze accents on its badging. It's used inside the car as well. I'm I'm not big on two tone wheels. I, I kind of love the idea of just even on supercars where they do black wheels or forged wheels with interesting designs. I kind of just like a clean look. Mm. Uh, I think in this case it, it fits in neatly with the rest of the design, so I'm, I'm willing to let it go. Scott, do these? Cooper's, particularly the Formentor, does that sit any lower than, like, is it dropped, but factory dropped? or? So I can't tell you off the top of the head what the ride height is. I can tell you sitting in the car compared to a Tiguan or an Ateca, you definitely feel lower, like you're in it rather than on it. Um, the driving position and the view out is a little bit sportier, which I personally really like and I think is in keeping with what the brand's trying to do. It's definitely an SUV though. It doesn't feel like a, a wagon on stilts or something like that. So you still do get into it. You don't sort of drop into it. Um, yeah. It's still quite easy to load stuff into the boot. But yeah, relative to other SUVs that are the same size in that Volkswagen world, you definitely feel a little bit lower and more ensconced in the car. Could this be a case of son and father driving the same car? Uh, I, I have no need to buy a new car at the moment. Um, so no, I also, if I were to buy a new car, I've, I've got my eyes, oh, I've actually just bought an apartment, so I don't need to buy a car at all. I need to just pay my mortgage oh, first. What were you going to say? I'm interested. Um, a Honda Civic Type R, I'm really interested Ooh, in the new the Type new R. Yeah. The new one, yeah. The new one, right. I think it looks fantastic. I love driving the previous one. So if for whatever reason, all of a sudden a whole lot of money appears in front of me, that's probably the way I'd go. But um, I do look forward to nicking the keys from Dad and, and going for a spin because um, mm, sure. I did enjoy my time with the Cupra. Mandy, I've never asked you. Would you would you ever buy an SUV? I, no, no. God so no. I just no. I figured I was asked. I figured I'd get bitten asking that question. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have a family. There's no need for me to have one. <laughs> hey, Scully, so the Formentor is a plug-in hybrid. Is that the only powertrain it comes with? So there are four different powertrains on offer. There's 140-kilowatt petrol, 180-kilowatt petrol. The first one is offered in the Audi A3, some Skoda stuff. The 180-kilowatt is the Golf GTI engine. The VZX has got the Golf R engine, same 221-kilowatt all-wheel drive. The VZE, I'm going to be talking riddles after this, the VZE is a plug-in hybrid and it's the first time that this powertrain has come to Australia. I think Volkswagen's previously tried to get it here in the Golf GTE but it never quite happened. It combines a 1.4-litre petrol engine with an electric motor on the transmission um, and you get about 50 k's of electric driving plus, as with all plug-in hybrids, then the flexibility to use the petrol engine to go further. Mm. Uh, Did you drive spend- it? Yeah, so we spent the majority of our time at the launch in that car. And I, I'm not a big advocate for plug-in hybrids. I know some people in our team really like them, but I find their performance can be really disjointed. You sort of feel like you're electric or petrol and the in-between is quite awkward. That's still present in the VZE, but the system is definitely one of the smoothest and the smartest ones I have driven. It'll do some really clever stuff like when you're driving uphill at a constant speed, for example, and you want to accelerate, it feels like the engine holds the revs steady. It doesn't downshift or anything, but the electric motor gives you the boost to go from 80 to 100 or whatever it is. 
Um, so it doesn't it doesn't feel jerky or sort of awkward in the way that some other cars with similar powertrains do because it seems like Volkswagen's worked out what the strengths of each powertrain are and then put a lot of time into calibrating when each gets to do its thing. I think the other cool thing about the VZE is that even though it's a bit heavier than the petrol cars, it actually still handles quite nicely. It's not as sporty as the VZ, which is the Golf GTI one, nor is it going to give the Leon any trouble. But when you turn it into a corner, it has quite a nice balance about it and it rides better than other plug-in hybrids I've driven. Stuff like the Peugeot 3008, for example, because they're so heavy, when you hit bumps, they take three or four movements to settle down. They're like boats almost. The four mentor felt really tightly controlled. So you hit a bump and it just settles straight away. It was quite impressive the way they managed to tune the suspension to hide the weight of it. Hmm. It's got 400 newton meters. Is it quick? It's interesting. I expected it to be quicker than it is. Uh, It's definitely got plenty of shove. It'll it'll sort of push you back in the seat, but it doesn't feel, I mean, electric's the wrong term. It doesn't feel as quick as the VZE, sorry, the VZX, the, the Golf R powered one. And because of the way that petrol engine runs out, it doesn't feel as as sporty or as performance oriented. Ultimately, the engine is kind of a version of the engine from the Golf base model. It's a 1.4 petrol. And when you put your foot down, you get the electric motor pushing, but that petrol engine still has to rev out and it sounds a little bit more strained. It doesn't feel as effortless. So it definitely can pass as a quick car when you're in the right mode at the right time. But the way it delivers it and how often you're able to access it is a little bit different to the VZX or the VZ. How long do we have to wait for an all-electric version? So the Born is the first electric Cupra. It's going to be here next year, and it's a version of the Volkswagen ID3 hatchback built on the Volkswagen MEB platform. Um, They're aiming for a price tag around the $50,000 to $60,000 mark, and we're only going to get a high-spec version of that initially at launch, the longer-range car. Beyond that, Cooper's promised it wants to release its last internal combustion new car in 2025 or 2026 from memory, and then 2030 it wants to be electric only. So we're going to see more. There will definitely be an electric SUV in this segment from Cupra. They've teased cars called the Tavascan and the Urban Rebel. Um, when we see them, what they'll look like, what they'll cost, all that sort of thing are, are too far down the track. Was well, it right to say they're a bit – when you've got – Hyundai coming out with the Ionic 5N late next year or early 24, probably late next year actually. Um, and that's going to be, the word is a bit of a weapon. I've, I've actually seen it, can't really talk about it for so-called secret reasons apparently. <laughs> but, um, you know, it sits on big rubber and looks pretty evil. Um, it, you know, that's... And it is a Hyundai, obviously, um, being the Ionic electric range only. But So these guys sound like they're not going to have anything like a proper, you know, high-performance SUV for quite some time, all electric. For, it in might the, be in a little while. Of, you know. Yeah, look, it might be a little while. And I think they're moving quickly because they've realized that's where the world's going and they want to be on the forefront of that to establish mm-hmm. themselves. I think as a starting point, uh, the four-mentor plug-in hybrid will make some people happy. It won't be the volume car. Um, I think as a starting point, the four-mentor with the engines it does have will please a lot of people. And when the electric stuff does come, that's then their gateway into it, basically. 
So we mm. said before on the on the podcast a couple of weeks back the aspirations that Cooper had about the numbers that they want to sell. So after you've driven them, do do you think that they're pretty close to those dreams? I have no idea. I wish yeah. I could give you a really informed answer. Um, <laughs> I think the product is good enough that if a lot of people want to buy them based on the looks, when they drive them, they won't be disappointed. And I also think pending supply, which is going to be the big one, there's definitely an opportunity there for Cupra. What I, what I struggle with is we've heard so many brands come out with bold sales claims. We've heard other brands go, no, no, we're not worried about sales. It's impossible to predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months in the case of what Cooper wants to do. Um, so for me to sit here now and confidently say, yeah, yeah, they'll definitely sell 7,000 cars in a year, I just don't know. Um, yeah. I think as a starting point, the 4Mentor and the Leon in particular are really strong cars. I think the Bourne is going to help give them another shove. And look, the Attack is going to be the lowest volume of the lot, I would imagine. It'll make a few people happy, but of the three, it's the least convincing to me. Yeah. You've also got the resale value. It's it's not a Volkswagen and it's not known like Volkswagen, so that could affect affect people's buying decisions. You mm. know, would you go a Tiguan R or would you go a Formentor VZX? You know, it's a bit of a question because they may not have the same resale. True. Yeah. Well, those three Cooper models reviews are at the site now for you to read through. Um, nicely done, Scully. We've been up very late at night to <laughs> write all those ones. The <laughs> rarely done. seen triple review. I'm out of here. Goodbye. <laughs> it's, it's it's big. It's a big call. Yeah. It's a job well done. So, where is the car expert team off to next week, Scully? So at the moment, as we speak, Paul Marek is in Germany on a very secret event that I'm not allowed to tell you about, or maybe I am. I don't know. Um, and then next week, Albors is off to Victoria. I say off to Victoria, coming to Victoria to drive the new Nissan Z. Super keen to hear what he thinks of that. Cool. We've also got uh, Will and I heading to Queensland for the Ford Ranger Raptor and Everest. And wow. James is heading to Canberra to drive the new Volkswagen T-Rock and T-Rock R. And Mike Costello is off to Salt Lake City, Utah, to drive the Toyota GR Corolla. Busy, busy week for the team. Wow. Amazing. In terms of what's in the garage, we've got Havel H6 in Melbourne along with a Cupra 4 Mentor VZX. If I have to say those words one more time, I'm going to lose my mind at this point. Um, Volvo XC90 recharge plug-in hybrid. I'm really looking forward to driving that because I love the XC90. It's such a beautiful, big, comfortable car. Mm. And that's a CX-5 Max Sport front-wheel drive. And then we're going to put together a comparison between a Peugeot 5008 GT Sport and a Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace 162 TSI R-Line. <laughs> Another long name for a car. Um, before we do say goodbye, Croft, you've got something very quick to say. I am desperate to mention um, the new Palisade. It's a big update, guys. It looks awesome. That's better. all we have time for. Thank you, Crawford. This has been great. Mandy, play the Oscars music. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah, go on, Croft. Just say one minute, then you're done. Uh, it, it is a Sorry massive update. Before, Tony. Yeah, the new Palisade is a massive update. It looks better. It looks demonstrably better. It's got a five-star safety rating, a whole bunch of new ADAS safety systems. Better still, it's got one of the best ride and handling balances we have ever, I drove with a competitor, um, a guy from a competitive company, and we both were gobsmacked by how well this crush bumps. And not at low speed, I'm talking 70Ks an hour in B roads in the country. Outstanding for a passive suspension setup. If you 
want a big SUV, 79 grand top spec, go for it. Oh, I think that's the quickest he's ever said anything about a car. Good on you, Tony Crawford. Thanks, Scully. Yeah, that's it. <laughs>